Hey there, this is Jonathan Capehart, and you're listening to Cape Up. This week, Congresswoman Karen Bass, Democrat of California. She was great to talk to because she has experience working with a celebrity new to government. That's because when Bass was Speaker of the California Assembly, she had to deal with then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, he was, he's, was a celebrity, but you didn't feel that he was unstable. That plays into why she said she feels like a political therapist for her constituents. Oh, and you can get the inside skinny on that big meeting she and the Congressional Black Caucus had with President Trump right now. Congresswoman Bass, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. We've been friends <laughs> friends for a while. That's right. Um, you are now in your... Seventh year, fourth term. Fourth term. How has Washington changed between the time you came in with the class of 2010 to now? Well, actually, you know, I came in with the big change. So the Tea Party, right, the Tea Party Revolution. Democrats lost 65 seats. Everything was going crazy. So to me, this is just like that time period, you know, on steroids. Really? Because now we have the Republicans in control of the entire government and we have the president that we do. So it makes 2011, which is actually when I was sworn in, uh, almost seem a little calm. You know, it was it was the rise of the Tea Party, but it was also um, a fiscal crisis as mm-hmm. well. So it was a double whammy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking of fiscal crisis, I mean, you'd been through one before Several. Because, because of the, the one thing people might not know about you is that you came to Washington not as a first just a first time member of Congress. You were the speaker of the California Assembly. Yes, I was. And I was only able to be in Sacramento six years because we had really short term limits. Mm-hmm. And so five out of the six years, we were in a crisis. <laughs> there was only cr- one year of stability. <laughs> it was a financial crisis. And we had Arnold Schwarzenegger as the governor. And so you had to work with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I you, did, you, closely. And what, what was that like? Well, on a daily basis, it was like working with a celebrity that's in charge of government. Doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> well, we're going to get to that. <laughs> and did you have to talk to the, the then governor about how things work in Sacramento and things that he wanted to do? Like there are procedures and processes that you have to go through in order to even get what you want done considered. Yeah, that, that little problem called democracy. We often had to explain the different branches of government because he would get frustrated and say, why do you have to ask those people for, you know, to vote on the budget? Why can't you just do it? Seriously? Well, because we're all elected. You're the executive. We're the legislative. And as speaker, I have 80 people who are involved in this. And as the Democrat you know, because there was a Republican leader, too, we had to consult our members about the budget. We couldn't just throw it down their throats. And isn't that interesting? Wasn't that similar to health care? You can't just do something just because you're the leadership and you want to do it. So compare contrast Arnold Schwarzenegger, celebrity person who became governor, to Donald Trump, celebrity who became president. Well, I tell you, uh, looking back at it and looking at what we're facing today, uh, one, I think that uh, the governor was much more in tune to public policy. You could actually have a conversation with him. And remember, I went over and met with President Trump um, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah. So I had that experience. But, uh, I, you know, he was, he's, was a celebrity, but you didn't feel that he was unstable. 
you know, I think all of us are going through, you know, kind of waking up every morning morning going, did he really say that? Did he really do that? <laughs> you know, uh, especially now because we're looking at Trump inflict wounds on himself almost on a daily basis. And you certainly didn't see that with Arnold. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about that meeting that you had with President Trump, and that was w- uh, you went to the White House as part of a small delegation from the Congressional Black Caucus. You are the second vice chair, right. of the Congressional Black Caucus. Was he what you expected? Was that your first time meeting him, and and was he what you expected? It was my first time meeting him. It was a little better than what I expected. But um, I'm not sure if in the end that was all that positive. So let me be very specific. There were six of us that went. We composed the executive committee of the Congressional Black Caucus. And um, we did a presentation for him. Each of us had our subject areas that we were presenting. And you came in with a book. It was a 130-page book. <laughs> it was. Of, like, here's the deal. Here's some legislation. Here's some policy. And, and very the, serious And the program. title of the book was We Have a Lot to Lose. Because remember, his, the, the statement that he made to the African-American community repeated, repeatedly, very insulting, frankly, what do you have to lose? Why don't you just vote for me? The Democrats have been screwing you for all these decades. Why don't you just go ahead and, and, and vote for me? So we wanted to tell him that we have a lot to lose. And in fact, in the first 50 plus days at that point of his presidency, we feel we've already lost a lot. I mean, in his first few days, he rolled back the consent decrees in Baltimore and Chicago. He pulled the federal government out of the voting rights uh, lawsuit in Texas. Uh, He signaled law and order, the mass deportations. All of that have impact, you know, uh, on our communities. The um, book that we presented him with began with African-American history because we thought that that would be a little helpful to him. And it ended with Uh, numerous pieces of legislation to provide examples of policy solutions that the uh, Congressional Black Caucus had to offer. Did you bring up Frederick Douglass? Uh, We told him he was coming with us. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, he's doing a lot of, he's getting a lot more recognition these days, more and more. (laughs) No, we didn't mention him. (laughs) When President Trump, when he was a candidate, would say, what do you have to lose? And, And talking about you know, you can't leave your home without getting shot and all and all of this other stuff. He was wasn't saying that to African-American no. audiences. He was saying that to nearly all white audiences. Didn't that just sort of add sort of insult to injury? Well, but I mean, I thought it was very intentional. I thought he was signaling to white audiences. Number one, I'm going to keep them under control. And number two, you know, you don't have to be afraid because I'm here. So, you know, we saw it as racist. You know, the chair of the Black Caucus, Cedric Richmond, began by talking about how the way he has described African-American communities is very negative and it's not helpful. And that if he wants to be a great president, he can't ignore an entire population. And so um, he didn't respond for most of our presentations. Again, he was very cordial. It was very friendly, but it was basically a monologue, us talking to him. He didn't have a lot to say back. It wasn't a conversation. Was he listening or was he just sitting there taking the punches? No, I think he was listening, but I'm not sure where it was going. How did you guard against becoming what I've been calling black drop um, in the way (laughs) that the HBCU presidents became the, the historically black college and university presidents who went down there for an executive order signing and then suddenly they're in the Oval Office being pictured with with the president and ultimately 
actually not getting anything more than maybe the pen that he signed. Well, basically, we said that we were there for a serious discussion. We weren't interested in formal photos. Uh, we met in the cabinet room for the formal presentation. We did go into the Oval for a few minutes, but the bulk of our time was spent in the cabinet room. So it was a very formal meeting. And I think that it was clear to him that we weren't there to schmooze. And uh, he was very proud of the meeting with the, with the uh, HBCU presidents, by the way. He mentioned that. It's one of the things that he said. He mentioned that, and he was very proud of the fact that he did not cut their funding uh, in his skinny budget. Uh, we pointed out, though, that the HBCUs needed far more money and that the cuts to other categories in his budget, such as K-12 through education, certainly <laughs> impacts the HBCUs. Mm-hmm. Last August, you launched a petition on MoveOn.org calling then-candidate Trump to undergo a, a mental health evaluation. And I'm wondering, why did you do that? Where do things stand? Do you still think this should happen now that he's president? Well, first of all, what I was really saying in the petition, and and you know, Jonathan, I have a medical background, Mm -hmm. uh, not in psychiatry, but in primary medicine. But one of the things that you're trained in primary medicine is when you need to make a referral, when somebody needs help. And so I was really concerned that the mental health community was not saying anything when I thought he was symptomatic and I felt that they knew it. And one of the things that held them back was their Goldwater rule. And uh, the Goldwater rule essentially, I guess, during Goldwater's time, psychiatrists and psychologists made uh, diagnosed him watching him on TV, and they got sued. And so since then, they have a, a practice within their profession that they don't say anything for fear of being sued. And I just thought that that was very inappropriate, that this was so important that he was displaying symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder, and why didn't they step up? Well, you know now that they have. 26,000 psychiatrists and psychologists have signed a letter or a petition calling on him to be evaluated. Right after he was nominated, a group of psychiatrists sent a letter to President Obama saying stop the inauguration. And that and that part of their code of ethics is the obligation to warn. In other words, if you have a patient that's getting ready to go blow up a building, it's your obligation to warn somebody. You have to break confidentiality. So now they're all reacting to their obligation to warn, and they're stepping up. And it's like, well, where were you last year? Okay, so now they're stepping up uh, to their obligation to warn, but that warning only works if anyone's willing to listen to it. I mean, one of the things um, that sort of mystifies me is that Congress, where where you mm-hmm, are, mm-hmm. is a co-equal branch of government mm-hmm. um, designed to be a check and balance on the executive, and yet with one-party rule, it doesn't seem like Congress is remotely interested in checking or balancing the executive. Right. And it's something that's talked about uh, all the time. But but let me tell you where I believe my Republican colleagues are. I mean, this is just my own personal opinion. I thought last year during the election, when it was clear that he was the nominee, I thought they had conceded the election and that they were planning on 2020 and they were going to give, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton all kinds of grief as president. So I think they were as shocked as we were when he won. And I think, frankly, that they're being opportunistic right now because they know that Trump is not ideological and they believe that this is their opportunity to get through an awful lot of their agenda. And I think we saw the first part of it play out with health care because there were other things in the health care 
uh, in, in Trump care that really was a part of their long-term agenda for the country. And so I think that they're being opportunistic right now. But the minute he starts to decline in his support amongst his hardcore supporters, I bet they run from him as fast as they can. But it doesn't look like those hardcore supporters are are going anywhere. I mean, even though his job approval rating now stands at 35 percent, according to the Gallup uh, tracking poll, uh, at least the last one I, I saw, that's the that's the hardcore. So Good. if if. But so if your Republican colleagues aren't already running away from him now, given but, those. But it hasn't even been three months. No, it just feels it like It feels forever. like two years. And so here's where I think it begins to change. You remember all of the promises that he made to his hardcore folks? He promised them jobs. He promised them better health care. He promised them all this stuff. Well, wait until he doesn't deliver. And here's what I think he'll do. I think he'll go right to their areas, and I think he'll tell them that they have jobs. Because one thing that we know is that he just makes up stuff. And when you make up stuff enough and it impacts a person, they're going to say, wait a minute, he just came here, had this big rally, told us we have jobs. I don't have a job. At some point, the rubber's going to meet the road. You know, they're going to have to say, well, where was the job? Well, right. Well, where was where were the jobs? But also, you know, you mentioned the skinny budget before, and right. the thing about that skinny budget to me, it was like, was this made by the writers at Saturday Night Live? Like, you could not get a more draconian budget ever for his base, right? And yet, you, you there are papers as uh, papers, there are stories in the New York Times and the Washington Post about how. You know, we've sent reporters to the middle of the country, to Trump country, talking to them, finding out, you know, well, here's a skinny budget and here's what they were going to try to do with health care. And yet they're like, no, we're still 100 percent our guy. How because it hasn't happened yet because it hasn't happened. I mean, you know, he's now saying he's not finished negotiating health care. Is that even true? <laughs> he keeps saying he's going to work with Democrats and, you know, there it'll be really easy, really yeah, easy to come up with a deal. Is that even is he talking to Democrats but on the see, hill? See, that's what I mean by just making stuff up because at the end of the day, this all is going to hurt him. He hasn't talked to any Democrats. I mean, I can say that, you know, assuming that he has certainly not talked to Leader Pelosi. She has not made any mention of that at all. But how can you begin a conversation with Democrats when your slogan is repeal? If your slogan is improve, we can have a conversation. Democrats never believed that the Affordable Care Act was some panacea. You, You never have a major piece of legislation like that without passing the bill and then spending years repairing it, improving it, unintended consequences, all sorts of things. When Social Security was passed, it took years. When Medicaid was passed, Medicare, all of those were transformative pieces of legislation. So you mentioned Nancy Pelosi, and Mm -hmm. I was at a meeting that she had with opinion writers a little bit ago recently, and she could barely contain (laughs) the glee. I mean, we've seen there's a YouTube video of her um, out in the the front of the Capitol with other members of Congress. Like she kicked off her heels and, you know, jumped up in the air. Um, This was after the defeat of Trump care. How important is she now to President Trump and his calculus in getting anything done? Well, uh, let me just say that pretty soon we're going to have the debt ceiling. 
And the debt ceiling is going to be decisive because the Freedom Caucus typically does not want to raise the debt ceiling. They do not believe that we need to borrow. They believe that we need to cut. And so in order to pass the debt ceiling, the president and Paul Ryan are going to need Democratic votes. And I know our position is going to be it has to be a clean debt ceiling. In other words, you can't attach a bunch of right. You can't defund Planned Parenthood to raise the debt ceiling, okay? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, is one of the things that I imagine they're going to do. But but let me go back a minute to um, the excitement around what happened. The reason why I was excited that the whole thing blew up was because it was such a victory to all of the protesters and all of the activists. And as a longtime activist, it's very important for people to know that those demonstrations, those phone calls, those letters, those emails made a difference. It was their victory. And I wanted to make sure that in my district, all of those people that have turned out for town halls, that they knew that they had a huge impact so that it will continue. Mm -hmm. Now, those town halls are, they can be tricky business for I love them. for for members of congress <laughs> well you get you get hundreds maybe thousands of people mm-hmm. de- depending on your district and they they're mad right. they're yelling they're screaming but don't they sometimes ask you questions that you can't you just can't answer in, in a town hall format? Well, first of all, I love town halls. I do them all the time. Um, and now they've uh, certainly exploded in terms of attendance. One of the things I like about them is that they're unpredictable. You just have no idea who's going to come. And they do get mad. But, you know, I don't. they're not mad at me. I mean, I don't take it personally. They're mad at the situation. And, yes, many times they ask me questions I can't answer, and I tell them I can't answer because I don't know. Or I will tell them I get back to them. Or I'll tell them I'm not going to answer in this setting. I'm just completely straight. And that frustrates people. But for the most part, people are very grateful that you would take the time and that, you know, you will listen to them. You know, one thing that people do all the time that I think is a mistake is, you know, you have your Q&A period question and answer. Mm -hmm. And people make folks ask questions. Ninety percent of the people don't want to ask the question. They want their voices heard. They want to make a statement. And so if you let people have their say, you know, they walk away feeling at least, you know, this was democracy in action. So you, you're, already, you're already ready during the Q&A to have there be no cues and all Absolutely. just monologues. And I have no problem with that, just so long as they don't give keynotes. I spend most of the time in Q&A because I know that I will just open up for a few minutes because there's no need for me to talk on and on. I can respond. You know, I felt like I had a new occupation. Uh, I'm now a political therapist. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it is, it is deep. The level of fear, panic, people talking about they're not sleeping. I mean, people are seriously frightened by this man. And one of the things that people wanted me to reassure them of was that he just can't unilaterally go push the button and blow up the world. I mean, I'm serious. And it's sad to see people in such emotional distress. And by the way, if anybody did a poll of therapists, and I'm sure you've heard this, Mm -hmm. they have been dealing with this. People calling and saying that they're, they're nervous, they can't sleep, they're afraid, they wake up every day. It's not about they're mad because Hillary Clinton's not the president. Of course, that's there's truth to that. But people are way more frightened by this guy than they are mad that she didn't win. What about the the folks? Have you had people show up at town halls saying, "Okay, 
what happens if they they prove collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia? Is the presidency legitimate? And if it's not, then can he be removed? And then can how can Hillary Clinton then come back in? Yes. All that's just fantasy. It absolutely is. But, um, you know, there's the concern about uh, or the the interest in him being impeached. But what I've been doing is directing people to 2018, because if he is impeached tomorrow, Republicans still control everything. We haven't accomplished anything. And so unless we get the House and or the Senate back, we're not going to be able to stop their agenda for the next four years, period. Whoever's in that seat, whether it's Trump, Pence, Ryan, it's still going to be a Republican. It's not going to all of a sudden be a Democrat. And so one of the things that I always do at town halls, and this has nothing to do with Trump, a a certain percentage of the town hall is spent reviewing civics because Mm -hmm. nobody remembers civics and people don't know how the government works. So you are on the Judiciary Committee the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. Yes. We got two big things happening in both the, <laughs> in both those areas. If you were in the Senate, on the Senate Judiciary Committee, how would you vote for Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch? I mean, I can't believe I just asked that question. I think I already know the <laughs> a answer. A big no. <laughs> <laughs> and is it a big no because you don't like what was done to Merrick Garland, no. President Obama's nominee, or no. you philosophically disagree with Judge Gorsuch? Well, I mean, I think the the most important thing that's been said about him, and I, I didn't, I watched some of the uh, hearings, but not all of them, is that he's just so evasive. And and but all but all Supreme Court nominees, yeah, but been Brown evasive. versus Board of Education. I mean, the loving, uh, you know, I mean, he he wouldn't. Those are those are basic. And and the prior uh, Supreme Court justices did respond. And so for him not to respond to some of those basic ones and then some of the decisions that he's made in the past, especially when it's an individual versus a corporation, uh, Mm -hmm. he certainly didn't seem to have any empathy toward the individual. So I would be a big no uh, for all of those reasons. Mm -hmm. And on on foreign affairs, what do you make of the president's meeting with the Egyptian strongman al-Sisi, mm-hmm. um, and then he's meeting with the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, in Mar- Mar-a-Lago, and apparently reports are he's not even going to bring up human rights, which is something that American presidents have done forever. You know, one of the things that I wanted to do today was to Google to see what properties he had in uh, Egypt. Um, I don't know if there's a Trump hotel. You know, I've been to Cairo, but I wasn't looking for a Trump hotel. (laughs) I don't know if there's certain holdings that are there. He's concerned about manufacturing that happens overseas when he has, you know, I think his hats were made in China. Yeah, the Make America Great Again hats, those those red hats. Yeah. You know, with him, you always have to worry that he's not talking about his own personal business. But one of the things that I felt in meeting with him and I don't know how it goes in his other meetings, is that he's very comfortable socializing, but not real comfortable with policy. And again, maybe it was because it was the Congressional Black Caucus. However, believe it or not, the Congressional Black Caucus talks about other things other than African-Americans. Right. And so he he was a little surprised to know that we don't all represent you know, 100% African-American districts. What was his reaction when he realized, like, wait, it's not you don't represent all black people. Right. He, he wanted us to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, our districts. But I, I, I don't know. I think, you know, when it comes to CC and, and not raising human rights, that's going to be real interesting. You know, I focus on the continent of Africa mm-hmm. 
And um, you have a, a situation there where a lot of African presidents have served out their terms according to their fairly new constitutions. And a number of them are like, eh, I don't think I want to leave. Maybe I'll change my constitution. Well, one of the things that really causes them pause is the United States. <laughs> and so now, you know, I worry that a lot of them will say, well, pff, this guy is president and he didn't even win the popular vote. You know, how is it he's sitting in the Oval Office and somebody else got three million more votes and then use it as and then use it as an excuse to change their constitutions, especially if it's real clear there's not going to be any consequences from the United States. So I think it sends a very bad uh, signal to the world. Correct me if I'm wrong. You started the Congressional Caucus on Foster Youth. I did. Why Foster Youth? Why is that issue so important to you? Well, uh, when I look at the African-American community, uh, we know that one of the main issues is uh, the criminal justice system and the impact that mass incarceration has had on our population. Well, if you look at what are the driver systems to mass incarceration, the foster care system is absolutely a very huge driver. So if you did a survey of the prison population on any level, state, federal, local, you will find a large percentage of inmates started in the child welfare mm. system. So I think it's one of those fundamental systems that needs to be transformed that impacts lower income people across the board, but it disproportionately impacts African Americans. Now a lot of white families are impacted because of the heroin crisis, but you know a lot of people don't realize that the majority of children in foster care are there because of child neglect, not child abuse or sexual abuse. And the neglect is primarily um, due to substance abuse, mental health, or abject poverty. Those are three issues that can be addressed without taking kids away. And so what I'm really focused on is trying to transform the system. And I'm happy to tell you, Jonathan, it's a very bipartisan issue. So my Republican colleagues, you know, who are hardcore Trump supporters are co-chairs of our caucus. We work together on this issue. And next month, we're going to have 100 foster youth from around the country uh, on the Hill for a week. And they will be shadowing their member of Congress. So 100 youth, well, actually young adults, they're from 18 to 30, uh, will be shadowing their specific member of Congress. And one of the people who you worked with at the beginning of this was former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, just to like put a point on just how this issue has such bipartisan support. Um, I want to uh, end on something that you don't talk about often, but I saw that it was uh, in your bio, and I wanted to ask you about it. Amelia Bass Lechuga and mm-hmm. your son-in-law, Michael Wright. And in the bio, you mentioned them in past tense, And so I wanted to ask you, because I know this is important to you, who were they, what happened to them, and why do you feel it's important to keep them alive in this way? Well, uh, Amelia was my daughter, and uh, Michael, my son-in-law, and they passed away in a car accident uh, when they were 23 years old. They had recently been married and had graduated college. And, you know, she's still, they still are very much alive uh, in my heart. Amelia had three siblings. My, when I uh, divorced, my husband remarried, and we raised the kids together. So her siblings are very much a part of my life, my stepkids, and I have three grandkids. But, you know, I couldn't do a bio and not include my daughter and son-in-law in that bio uh, because they're still very much a part of my life. 
Representative Karen Bass of California. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 